It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are on the road, actually, in Castel Gandolfo, Italy, uh, the traditional summer residence of the popes. Uh, Pope Francis is not here. Uh, he opts not to reside in the summer palace over the summers. Now he's back at the Vatican in Rome. But um, it is the traditional residence of the popes. It's also the home of the Vatican Observatory and uh, where we are still moving forward in truth and love here. I'm Lauren Green. I'm chief religion correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. And with me is Father Richard D'Souza. He's a priest, a Jesuit, and an astronomer. He's a walking and talking example of how science and faith and faith and reason are richer when they are brought together. So welcome. Thank you so much. First of all, where are we? Um, I told them we're in Gestalt and Gandalfo, but where are we really physically? So we are physically on, in the Pastoralic Palace of the Popes, situated in Castel Gandolfo, on the fifth floor, which on this floor has been traditionally given to the astronomers from the 1935 onwards to host their telescopes and their offices. Um, so in, on the Apostolic Palace, we still have two large telescopes from the 1930s. But in the meantime, the offices of the Vatican Observatory have been moved out of the Apostolic Palace to make way for the Vatican museums to come in and open it to the public. We now have bigger, better spaces on the other side of the people gardens. The Vatican astronomers continue to have access to the telescopes, very dear to their hearts, mm -hmm. and we often visit groups, uh, bring groups up here to show them the telescopes, to talk to them about the church's mission to the Vatican Observatory and how we try and bridge faith and science together. So right now we are on the top floor of the, of the Apostolic Palace, the beautiful view, oh, it's a gorgeous of, view. The, wow. of the lake, uh, a really ideal site to do science and religion. How can you get any work done though? It's so that is true. Most work is done during the night. It's always <laughs> done during the night. Your night work. <laughs> that is a very interesting point. And, and I think one of the things you talk about, you know, the, the museum, they're turning this into a museum. The papal vehicles down in the courtyard, that's part of the museum, I take. That is part of the museum. This is all the new additions since Pope Francis uh, took over and immediately turned this into the um, into the Vatican Museum. So th this building traditionally has been the summer residence of the popes. That is, the popes never had other pla uh, places to go to for holidays during the hot summer months of Rome, and they would come here along with their coats. Um, Pope Francis, being a workaholic, doesn't seem to enjoy taking a break during the summer, and rather than leave these spaces vacant, has chosen to open them to the public, so the public be able to at least be able to have a glimpse into the lives of the popes and how they have lived here through the centuries. It's a beautiful place, uh, very much on the hill. No one has to do any kind of uh, elliptical jogging, whatever, in Gastel Gandalfo. You just have to walk up the hill. Um, but there is a lot of research going on here in the Vatican Observatory, yes. right? So the Vatican Observatory um, is a small astronomical institution which begins around the 1890, has origin around the 1890, but has, was 
it formally begins here at Castel Gandolfo around 1935. Formally, it was um, inside the walls of the Vatican, but after the Lateran Treaty was signed with the Italian state, and these properties were returned back to the Pope, the Vatican Observatory moved out of Rome to this place to avoid the harsh lights of night lights of Rome, which spoil all astronomical observations. Unfortunately, the um, Rome as a city has grown much over the years, yeah. and the lights of Rome now empower, um, kind of envelop even Castel Gandolfo. So you can actually see, see the St. Peter's Basilica Stick dome. I mean, it's a long yeah, ways away, right. but you can actually still see it. And we're, the, in the night, it's even it's be about um, thirty-five odd kilometers away from Rome. Okay. Um, and um, well, the city of Rome itself now has extended, you know, it's, um, and the area around here also has been developed over the last few years. So the place now is unsuitable for, for astronomy. So the traditional, what do you call, legal office of the Vatican Observatory continue to be in the papal territories in the region of Castel Gandolfo. But for most practical astronomical reasons, we now operate outside Italy. So the Vatican Observatory has a telescope in Tucson, Arizona, <laughs> on top of, the, of Mount Graham. That's, it's funny, we have to go to Rome to actually find out about an observatory in Tucson. Uh, Tucson, exactly. So, um, yeah, so around the 1980s, uh, the, the then director, the late father George Coyne, who was a professor at the University of Arizona before he became the director of the observatory, he struck up this agreement with the University of Arizona. And we rented spaces within the astronomy department of the University of Arizona. Um, and um, he chose University of Arizona because on mainland Europe, that is perhaps the best place where you can observe the night sky. On mainland, on ma sorry, on mainland USA, mainland USA, USA really? that would be the best place to observe the night sky. You have a few other observatories in Flagstaff, in New Mexico, but perhaps the best observatories in the United States of the United States is actually outside um, the mainland United States. So right. in, in Hawaii, the famous Keck telescopes, and the U.S. has also a few telescopes down in Chile, mm. uh, with an agreement with the Chilean government, as the Europeans also have their telescopes down in Chile. But in mainland U USA, the best place would be uh, around the deserts of Arizona. So, so what is your background? I mean, this is an odd combination. I think nobody, not nobody, but I mean, very few people understand this connection between faith and reason and the fact that you've got priests actually doing scientific research. What is your background? So um, I come from a very traditional Catholic family uh, uh, in Goa, India. Um, Goa has been an enclave of the Portuguese for many years, right up to the 1960s, until it was then taken over by the, the state of India. But right from the 16th century onwards, with the arrival of various missionaries, primarily the Portuguese, um, that enclave has been very strongly Catholic. So we from a very strong Catholic background. Um, and as I was growing up, I was always interested in the sciences. I mean, I always envisioned myself to be an engineer or a scientist. Um, along the way, um, when I was a teenager, 
uh, I heard God's call. I uh, felt the desire to be a Jesuit priest. I was, uh, I was um, studying in a Jesuit school at that time, uh, Jesuit high school, and looking at the Jesuits and reading about them and reading about their history themselves in the sciences and the discovery of the new worlds. Uh, I was fascinated by the order and I entered into the Jesuit order, uh, not really um, not really knowing at that time that I would end up in astronomy. I mean, I, at that time, as a young boy, around 20 years old, I thought I would be giving up my science career to join the Jesuits and be a missionary. But lo and behold, that the Jesuits themselves asked me later on to study science. Um, and eventually, they directed me to work here at the, at the Vatican Observatory, which is run by the, the Vatican Observatory is run by the Jesuits, and the Jesuit order has the responsibility to man the Vatican, search for young men, train them, and allow them to work at the, at the service of the popes. What is the interest of the Catholic Church in science? I mean, I think a lot of people believe these two things are separate and that the, the Church has no interest in science. Um, and yet, so tell us, what is the Church's interest in science? So the Church has always had a, a, um, a large interest in the sciences right up from the beginning of the 15th century. So most, we can begin by talking about how the Catholic Church was a great supporter of the development of the universities here in Europe. And these universities had departments of philosophy and then departments of science. And the great people, the patrons of these universities uh, has been princes, uh, cardinals, popes. So the Catholic Church has been behind um, the development of the academic tradition in the sciences. Also in, the, in, in astronomy, uh, with, the, with the discovery of the new worlds, the church took a very practical interest in astronomy. And their interest is um, they wanted to reform the then calendar that we had, the Julian calendar, because there were some problems with the Julian calendar. And the date of Easter kept moving and had to be declared um, in advance by a few months, uh, which could not be done to these people in the far-off countries, in, in, the, in, in India, in in Africa. In right, no phones, no the Google, phones no, no nothing, no, no Twitter, nothing. Well, by the way, it's, it's Easter it's to next right, week. Right. So um, the, the reform, the church took out this grand project of reforming the calendar. It called upon its best mathematicians and scientists at this time. These happened to be the Jesuits working at the Roman College, an institution here in Rome, to reform the calendar. And that involved a large amount of study of how the, the movements of the planets, the movement of the sun, the movement of the earth, um, and in this way begins the story of the Jesuits getting involved formally on behalf of the church in the study of astronomy. Around that time you also have new instruments coming up, like the telescope, Galileo looking through the telescope, looking at the planets around, looking at the moons of Jupiter, looking at the moons of Saturn. And all these things brought new discoveries and the Jesuits were at forefront in these discoveries also. Um, there were a lot of conflicts, as happens in all scientific traditions, but one can say that the church, right from the very beginning, had this large interest in astronomy. Beginning in a very practical reason, but then, of course, to discover the heavens, because the heavens should also proclaim the glory of God. So, 19, yes. yes. Um, we, the, so the popes officially had a number of papal observatories, 
years situated in Rome. There were at least three in about 400 years. But the main one was always at the Roman College, which is the today what is officially called the Gregorian University. Um, then around the um, end of the 20th century, when the Italian state uh, conquered much of Rome and held the whole Pope almost a prisoner within the walls of the Vatican, that all the, observ the papal observatories were removed from him and became part of the uh, Italian state. The Pope was left without an observatory. It was at this time that in 1890, uh, the Pope, Pope Leo XIII, then founds the present Vatican Observatory within the walls of the Vatican. So the present Vatican Observatory is beginning in 1890. And the main, the main objective of the Vatican Observatory, as envisioned by the Pope, was to show to the world and the church that science and religion can go together very symbolically through the, through the study of astronomy. Uh, we can also give various examples of people outside the Vatican Observatory who made great developments um, in, in astronomy. You can talk about Father Angelo Secchi, who's considered the father of Italian astronomy, the one who invented stellar spectroscopy to understand what the stars are made up of. He was a Jesuit priest, working, Jesuit astronomer working at the uh, at the Roman College, the last of them, before the Italians took over. Yeah. We can even talk about Father George Lemaitre, the Belgian uh, priest, uh, who worked along with Einstein, took Einstein's equations and formulated uh, the new idea that the world was expanding, and if the world, the universe was expanding, then it must have been smaller in the past, and one extrapolates back in time that it must have started from a single point today what we would call the Big Bang. It's a very Catholic idea, the Big Bang, formulated by uh, a Belgian Catholic priest, Father and, George. And the Pope Lemaitre. was so excited about this, he wanted to write an encyclical. Yes, the Pope was very excited. Said, no, 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 Father, don't, no, Father, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting story, but most people don't realize is that um, um, in the scientific tradition, among scientists, there have been two currents. One is a current dominated by the atheists and there's a current dominated by the believers. The eight, and you must understand that often even one's ideological concerns colors the way one does science right. and those other science. So the atheists uh, among them always held and maintained that the universe must be steady because if there, uh, and they, this avoided the question that if the universe had a beginning, one doesn't need to talk about what came before the beginning of the universe and who created the universe or the creator of the universe, etc. Solved all problems by assuming that the universe was steady. It was called as the steady state universe. Um, but there were the others who, who were convinced that the universe, as the Catholic faith teaches us also, that the universe had a beginning and it was created by God. Um, Father George Lemaitre, with his discovery, really was able to show in a very scientifically that the universe must have had a beginning. Um, and this, of course, excited the Pope because uh, the Pope, you know, this gives them an advantage, gives the Catholic Church, Catholic theology an advantage over, over the sciences, over the atheistic tradition within the science. But the problem with that, though, too, is now we've got a, we've got a beginning, which 
which, which, which confirms Genesis, the book of Genesis, Genesis. but we've got a description, descri- I'm sorry, a, discrepancy. a discrepancy about the length of that beginning. Yes. And, and science can tell us that the, you know, the universe is about you know, 13 billion, 14 billion years, years old, old, and that conflicts for a lot of people of faith where the Bible has these seven days. Yes. So um, let's, uh, let's take a step back and try and, and navigate this um, both theologically and scientifically. So um, the, the dogma, the article of faith is, uh, for the Catholics is that the universe was created by God. God created the universe and God saw that it was good. That is the article of faith. It is not specified in article of faith how God created the universe. That's what the Bible gives a description of that. Now the Bible gives multiple descriptions of how God created the universe. So in fact, in the very first three chapters of Genesis, there are already two parallel conflicting descriptions of how God created the universe. Um, the, I think the idea of the writers of the book of Genesis was not to communicate a scientific fact of how it happened, but a theological truth that it happened. And that's a big difference. And that is a very big difference because both, to, both the stories communicate the single theological fact that God created the universe and God created everything in the universe and God created that it was good. But both differ in how they describe how God created the universe. So the question comes, one can see a logical inconsistency and say, which of the two descriptions should we take it? Why should we favor the first or the second, or the second over the first? So it is very clear among in Catholic theology that um, in Catholic dogma, the way we interpret the Bible is that God created them. This, these stories are trying to communicate that. In fact, within the Bible, there are other stories, in other books of the Bible, communicating how God created the They all boil down to the fact that they communicate one single theological truth. There are other truths also contained in those books, uh, which are important for a Catholic faith, to talk about um, the reality of sin, the fall, the fall of humankind, redemption, um, the nature of the human person, relationships, um, many of the other Catholic truths which are also contained in these, in these books. So if one could understand this, the best way we would describe this today is that the book of Genesis, especially the first few chapters the book of Genesis, are very dense in theological truths. But the language which they use, the genre, the keyboard is the genre they use, is often they use, they try to communicate these truths to the genre of myth, stories, myths. Hmm. They would not be considered as history, as historical truths. They are considered as theological truths. This does not decrease their worth by any, any, any means. It increases their words. Um, but it is much more easier to condense a lot of theological truths in a genre of a myth than in a genre of history. Very fascinating. Well, we're going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Talk, uh, come back with Father D'Souza, who is an astronomer with the uh, Vatican Observatory. And we're going to talk about what is a miracle uh, through the eyes of a scientist. We'll be right back. Did you know that every major diaper company either financially or vocally supports abortion? If that appalls you and you're looking to support a baby brand that aligns with your pro-life, pro-family views, then every life 
is your solution. Every Life firmly believes that regardless of where someone is from, what they look like, or whether they were planned or unplanned, every baby is a miracle from God worthy of love, protection, and celebration. Every Life offers high-performing, supremely soft, premium diapers and wipes delivered right to your doorstep. Their diapers are crafted without fragrances, dyes, lotions, latex, parabens, or phthalates. And you can feel good knowing that every purchase with Every Life contributes to changing lives through their support of pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. Every Life is not just changing diapers, they're changing lives. Visit everylife.com to learn more. That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today. Right, we're back with Dr. Um, her father, D'Souza. You are a doctor as well. I mean, you are, a, you know, you have a doctorate. And, and um, is it? Is, is it's in astronomy. In astronomy, yes. So you are well-versed. Um, but one of the talks you gave was about the idea of miracles. And one of the things that people can uh, criticize the church for is saying something's a miracle when they say, well, it's just ignorance. We don't have the science yet to understand how this thing happened. So from a scientist's point of view and a Catholic, what is a miracle? Yeah, so the, according to the Catholic Church, a miracle is a definitive sign of the coming of the kingdom of God. A definitive sign of the coming of a kingdom of God. It would be an event which shows definitely, univocally to all around it, that God is acting here and now to bring about his kingdom. This is how, how we would theologically define a miracle. Unfortunately, the present modern understanding of the miracle is a bit different. It's formulated in terms of scientific laws. So uh, a scientific law would be a certain ordering of nature described by science. And most people, including scientists and the common folk, even common Catholics, would think of miracle as something which defies a scientific law. But this is not true. You cannot define, um, you cannot define a miracle in that way. In fact, if you define a miracle that way, I would like to point out to people that even, let's say, black magic, which is also um, defying natural uh, scientific law would fall under that same definition. This is a very mundane, very uh, it's a it's a very wrong definition. But it's unfortunately the dominant understanding of miracles, uh, even among Catholics, but more so among scientists. Yeah, I thought so too. No, so I thought that a miracle was something that defined the natural scientific law. So I like to take this discussion a bit further and talk about like scientific laws as we know it is really an encoding of the present knowledge of the universe into a, a law. We see some things happening regularly. Mm -hmm. We encode it into a scientific law. We describe it to the theories we have. Um, and we then assume that it is valid in all the universe, at all times. Nobody actually goes to check it. But we kind of assume that the laws of nature are same everywhere and at all times. But it also, this kind of way of looking at the universe helps us to navigate the universe, to navigate, right. navigate our lives, mm -hmm. right? So we are quite happy to get into a plane and fly across the ocean because we know... Gravity's gonna still work. Gravity's <laughs> gonna still work. The plane's gonna fly, you're not gonna fall down and you know, kind of, kind of things. And it helps us through our life. 
But we must understand that the way we have formulated, I like to say that the way we formulate scientific laws is only an encoding of our present description of the laws. This, um, scientific laws are like 600, 700 years old, starting with Galileo, with Newton. Um, and it's our way of describing the universe. But miracles are much older, much longer. People never described a miracle as, as, as something defying a scientific law a thousand years ago because there were no scientific laws. Right, right. It's, uh, it's a much more recent thing. I think it's worthwhile returning back to that definition of a definitive sign of the kingdom of God. What, what would that be? What would that look like? It could look in many ways. It could be the birth of a new child against all odds would be a miracle. Uh, it could be the healing of someone who had no hope. No hope given by present scientific medicine, medicinal knowledge. Um, it is a definitive sign of the kingdom of God. It means God is acting. It could act in many ways. It could be a war ending against all hope. It could be um, the birth of a new child. It could be um, it could be a change in the economic situation. It could be liberation for prisoners. Uh, it could be sight to the blind in many ways. It could be in many ways. It could be a new... Um, so it has to be really where people around it look at it and, and are moved with faith and hope. That would be a difference. It seems like it's less defined. It's it is a less defined. It is. It is. Uh, every miracle has to go through, officially recognized by the church, mm -hmm. has to go through a stringent series of steps, to first to show that it cannot be explained by natural causes, and to second, it has to. They ha the church has to show that there is an increase of faith, hope, and love after the sign. Um, right, so it's, it's not just miracle for miracle's sake. sake you know, no. here I can, I can, I can, you know, t you know, leap tall buildings in a so single bound. I, mean, I can walk on the water. I can walk and, and, yeah, look at me. You know, yes. It's like it has to be for human flourishing. Flourish, yes, it has a flourishing of human faith, hope, and love. If there is an increase of human faith, hope, and love as a cause of this miracle, then it is considered a miracle. How can science and faith work together? And we've been talking about this. You are actually an embodiment of this. But one of the things I always get from young people or pastors of people or scientists uh, who, are, who are believers is that there are young people out there who simply are, they, they hear one thing in their science classes in school and they ask their pastor or priest the same questions about, well, if that's true, then what, why does the Bible say this? And they get stymied because they don't get an answer, and a lot of times it may draw them away from faith. And they lose a lot of their faith when they get to college. What's, how, can we, how can you bring those things together? How can you bring those things together? And how do you? So the way which we go about is education. We try to educate it, to instruct people. Instruct people in three particular directions. In first, in instructing them about their Catholic faith. People need to understand their Catholic. I like to point out to most people is that most most Catholics get stuck at that teenage level of understanding of their faith till they get to confirmation, <laughs> and and then they never have any instruction 
uh, till they till they get married or you know really no form of formal instruction. The Catholic faith has always been communicated to children in the language of children, and to adults it needs to be communicated in the language of adults. The first part gets done yeah. through formal structures of catechism. The second the second step falls along the way. So instructing people in their faith. What does their faith themselves tell uh, about, about science? What does the faith themselves talk about the descriptions in the book of Genesis? What is Catholic dogma about it? It's not reading something off the internet <laughs> and getting false stories, probably a bunch of Protestantism involved in it. But really, what is our Catholic faith? Well, that's the thing. A lot of people assume that the Bible is in conflict with science. What do you say? The Bible cannot be in conflict with science. In fact, I'd like to point out to you there are two books we call them. The book of nature, the book of scripture. The book of nature would be what we will learn through sciences, through nature. And the book of scripture is the book of divine word. Kind of, you can talk about this, the book of, um, the way Luther himself, the divine word, he, he raised it to a pedestal. Now, it is a dogma of our Catholic faith that both these books have the same author, God. So what we learn through our human reason, through the book of nature, is taught to us by God. And what we learn through the book of scripture is also taught to us by God. So they both have the same author. And they both should lead us to the same truths. Okay. Now when there is an apparent conflict, as quite often youngsters have this apparent conflict, um, we believe that they cannot be a conflict. That is a dogma of our faith. They cannot be in conflict. The book of nature cannot be in conflict with the book of um, with the with the with the book of scripture. And if there is an apparent conflict, it is because that we do not understand or interpret these two books better. Either our scientific theories are not up to the mark, or either our understanding of scripture itself is not what is true. And this calls for pause and calls for a deeper investigation in both directions. I'd like to remind people that the Catholic faith holds that human reason gifted to us by God is a sure way to reach the truth. Unlike various Protestant traditions which consider human reason as failed, beyond salvation, beyond redemption. The Catholics, Fides Ratio, in their encyclicals, say very clearly, Human reason is a gift by God. It's not perfect. It's bit foil fails at times, but with God's grace and help, through human reason, we can get there, get to the truth. And this involves much greater study, both of the scriptures, of the Holy Scriptures, the Book of Scripture, but both about the sciences. In both areas, we, are, we need to reflect much more. So when there is an apparent conflict, I I think pastors, priests, catechists should not be quick to launch the blame at the other. That's perhaps the first lesson, right? But yes, we can understand it. It's always a deeper thing. It's not a simple, there are no simple answers in this thing. And perhaps people get shy, people shy away because the answers can be deep, complicated, worthy of investing a lot of time and understanding, which is no easy answers, no Twitter answers. Wow. I, I, well, thank you so much. This has been powerful. Um, 
Father D'Souza or Dr. D'Souza, uh, thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thank you so much. How can people find out more about the Vatican Observatory? So the Vatican Observatory is an institution which can be visited here in Rome. Well, unfortunately, most people will not be able to get down to Rome. But if you are in the area, please do come by and visit us. Uh, you can, if you're also in the Tucson area, Arizona, please come by and visit us. Um, but we are also accessible through our websites, uh, which is vaticanobservatory.pa or .org. Write to us, talk to us. We are there for you. We are there to answer your questions, especially about the faith and science, how they go together. And we also offer, offer programs, often in the United States, of how, about how to combine faith and science, like a weekend retreat programs, the deserts of Arizona, um, and some of this information is available on our website, so you can look up. There are many ways to reach us. Just feel free to reach out to us, and we'll get back to you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. I'm Lauren Green. Um, this is Lighthouse Faith. Have a blessed day. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.